Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder and sexuality. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. When you are married to a doctor, trust has to extend beyond that of a typical relationship. You must have faith in them, not only with your heart, but also with your health. After all, they're the expert. So when they tell you that a flurry of dizzy spells warrants nothing more than a visit to the optometrist, you believe them. And when you start knocking into furniture as you walk across the room, you let them assure you that you've always been that clumsy. There's no way you could have been poisoned. After all, there's nothing they stand to gain from your death. Money, freedom, they have these things already. It'd be like they were killing you just to prove they could get away with it. You'd certainly know if you'd married that kind of monster. At least, that's what Annette Bauer thought in 1999. Her husband, Dr. Colin Bauer was a good and decent man. He worked hard. He loved her. No one could be that good at pretending. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to be able to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our case of Dr. Colin Bauer whose life was complicated professionally, and his story offers some extremely important lessons for all doctors and for all of those we have the honor to treat. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our one-part episode on Colin Bauer. In January 2000, the South African doctor thought he committed an untraceable murder. Today, we'll follow the story of his rise in the medical field, his many affairs, and the decision to end his marriage in the most irreversible way. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
On the morning of November 20th, 1999, Dr. Andrew Bowers with Dunedin Hospital in New Zealand was assigned a new patient. She was a memorable one from the start, since her name was almost identical to his, Mrs. Annette Bauer, put in the care of Dr. Andrew Bowers. The patient was a middle-aged woman, and she'd arrived at the hospital unconscious. Her husband, Colin Bauer, who was also a doctor at Dunedin, told Dr. Andrew about the dizziness she'd been experiencing in the days leading up to her... attack? Stroke? Colin said he wasn't sure what was going on. Annette had had an optometrist appointed the week prior and was prescribed glasses, which had helped. Her condition hardly seemed urgent. Of course, that was before Colin found his wife unconscious in her bed. When someone falls ill like this, without any warning, it's scary for loved ones, but it can be just as unnerving for doctors. This is because we have to make some kind of diagnosis despite having so little to go on. In the case here, dizziness, loss of coordination, and headaches could indicate a variety of conditions. On the surface, it may appear that someone's experiencing the effects of brain trauma or even a dangerous cardiac event. To rule these different possibilities out, ER staff would have to run a blood test to check for foreign chemicals and investigate the blood sugar, electrolyte levels, and kidney function. With so many variables and investigative approaches to consider, healthcare professionals do their best to get to the bottom of a problem by prying as much information as they possibly can. This explained why the hospital staff asked Colin to search his house for a drug stash. But when he returned hours later, Collins said he hadn't found anything. Overnight, Annette had become a medical mystery. Dr. Andrew Bowers soon found himself combing her every move for clues. If only he'd known that the answer was standing in front of him. A lot is known about Colin Bauer, though it's difficult to know how much of it is true. He was born in 1950 in Bloemfontein, South Africa. That much is a fact. But the rest of his stories seem to be lies based on kernels of real experience. Colin would have us believe that he had a graduate degree in pharmacology, was a physician with specialized training in internal medicine, and was a brave political dissident in apartheid South Africa. He even claimed a personal relationship with Nelson Mandela. But none of that is true. Granted, Colin Bauer did have medical training. He attended medical school at Pretoria University, graduating as a general practitioner in 1975 at the age of 25. Shortly after, he was commissioned into the South African military, serving with the South African Defense Force for two months before resigning and finding work as a primary care physician in the private sector. In the military and after, Colin had a reputation for being a charming and charismatic man. People liked him, which is probably what eventually helped him get away with some of his lies. His friends and colleagues wanted to believe him. One described Colin as just so plausible that he had a way of convincing you that he was telling the truth even when he was backed into a corner. 
it wouldn't take long for the charmer to marry and for marriage to take its toll on wife after wife. Colin married his first wife, Mariette Kruger, in late 1975. He quickly adopted Mariette's daughter from a previous relationship, Henriette. The pair also had a child together, a baby boy named Colin Jr. At first, Colin seemed like the model husband and father. But the facade slowly became undone. It seems Colin was unfaithful and often. He also began using Demerol, an opioid that has a similar effect to morphine. Demerol is an opiate that's typically prescribed for pain management, and it's often abused because of how addictive it is. The impact that opiate addictions can have on relationships are vast, and Colin's infidelity certainly could have been fueled by his drug use. These kinds of medications affect mood and personality, and because Demerol is a particularly short-acting opiate, the shift between euphoria and depressive behavior from an acute withdrawal can be pretty quick. It likely would have made Colin's conduct highly erratic, and in fact, this class of meds actually tends to make people aggressive. In the context of a romantic partnership, addictions like this can make people absent-minded, selfishly motivated, and financially going south. All in all, this sort of drug abuse is nothing but corrosive when it comes to family life. Like many who suffer from addiction, Colin was a difficult person to be around. The marriage only lasted a few years before Colin and Mariette separated. Before 1981, Colin married and divorced once more, presumably following a similar pattern of initial charm followed by infidelity and addiction. Around 1981, newly single and twice divorced, Colin Bauer met a physical therapist named Annette Langford at a local meeting of Mensa. The high IQ pair hit it off right away and were soon married. At this point, either Colin had grown much better at lying, or Annette was wildly in love because this marriage lasted much longer than Colin's first two, even though he continued his unethical behavior. In 1982, barely a year into their relationship, Colin's medical license was suspended due to drug abuse. We don't know who reported him, but he landed on the list of impaired doctors and his license remained at least partially suspended for 10 years. It's hard to say how Colin justified this to Annette, but it was around this time that he began specializing in psychiatry. He eventually talked his way into a position with the Department of Psychiatry at Stellenbosch University outside Cape Town. It's remarkable that anyone got away with that. Practicing professional psychiatry obviously requires someone to be fully credentialed, so Colin may have forged documents and he probably told some pretty tall tales. His ability to gain the position was likely a confluence of factors, a major one being that this was essentially a pre-internet era. With systems and communications in healthcare not being so advanced, Colin might have been able to use his skills as a manipulator to further his professional status and public image. 
Given our modern paradigms of rapidly acquiring and digitalizing information, suspended medical licenses generally have larger implications than they did 30-plus years ago. With that, a doctor like Colin wouldn't have such an easy time today trying to advance their career after this kind of sanctioning. In the early 1990s, nobody seemed to suspect that Colin was anything but an intelligent psychiatrist with enormous integrity. And he proved so successful in the field of psychiatry, he never considered going back to general practice, even after his license was completely restored around 1992. And soon, it wouldn't just be Stellenbosch University and his wife that he was fooling. In 1996, Colin attended a conference in Spain where he met Dr. Sarah Romans, the head of the University of Otago's Department of Psychological Medicine in New Zealand. Colin made quite the impression on Dr. Romans, who decided to offer him a job. She later told journalist Carl Elliott with The New Yorker, Here I am, an academic head of department looking for good staff, and here is this unpolished diamond, He seemed like a great catch. 46-year-old Colin Bauer appeared thrilled at the prospect of working in New Zealand. He took Dr. Romans up on her offer. Though New Zealand may have had a draw outside of the job. Around that time, two women in South Africa came forward claiming that Colin Bauer slept with them while they were his patients. Supposedly, Both women said he seduced them by telling them that his wife had terminal cancer and that he was unable to have sex with her. However, when the South African Medical Council asked these women for intimate details, both are said to have withdrawn their complaints. Even still, it seemed like the perfect time for Colin to leave town. He landed in Dunedin, New Zealand in early 1997. Once he was settled, he sent for Annette and their two children, Anthea and Greg. The Bowers moved into a cliffside home that overlooked a white sand beach where locals liked to surf. It's easy to imagine that from such a lofty height, Colin Bower felt untouchable. He certainly acted like it. Coming up, Colin grows reckless and steps closer and closer to the cliff's edge. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. (laughs) Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 
1997, the Bauer family moved from Stellenbosch, South Africa, to Dunedin, New Zealand. Colin and Annette Bauer had been together for 16 years and had two children together, so this move was their family's exciting new chapter. At least, that's what Annette thought. She was seemingly unaware of her husband's relationships with other women or the accusations against him back in South Africa. Ostensibly, they'd moved continents so 47-year-old Colin could continue his work in psychiatry as a faculty member at the University of Otago and its affiliated teaching hospital in Dunedin. We don't know his exact responsibilities, but part of his job also included clinical work at Southland Hospital in Invercargill. The university set him up with an apartment near the hospital since he worked odd hours and was often forced to spend the night. Soon, rumours spread that Colin rarely spent the night in Invercargill alone. Among his many mistresses were several female colleagues at both the Southland and Dunedin hospitals. It's hard to say whether his wife Annette suspected anything or if she was completely in the dark. As Colin told her, he worked long and grueling hours and rarely had time for family or social life. Meanwhile, Colin led his co-workers to think that Annette suffered from a social condition like agoraphobia, which explained why she rarely showed up at company events or parties. Colin made it seem like he had his hands full with her and their children, so social events were a chance for him to blow off steam. It's possible that the colleagues he slept with in New Zealand saw him as a good-hearted man who was dealt an unfair hand. They likely thought they weren't breaking up a marriage. They were providing an outlet for Colin to find affection and emotional support. These casual affairs continued for nearly three years. Then, one connection deepened in a way Colin hadn't anticipated. In 1999, 49-year-old Colin was sent to a work conference in Copenhagen along with his colleague, Dr. Anne Walsh. She was the director of training at the hospital and once headed the Department of Psychological Medicine. Colin had always enjoyed talking with Anne. She was a brilliant doctor and an influential member of the faculty. She also happened to be married to the head of the Department of Pathology they shared a teenage daughter. Granted, their marriage had been on the rocks for some time, and the entire hospital knew they were on their way to getting divorced, which might have been why Colin felt comfortable pursuing her. While Anne Walsh later said that her sexual relationship with Colin didn't begin until after the death of his wife, evidence suggests they began their affair while in Copenhagen, and that it continued when they returned to New Zealand. Colin was in love and appeared ready to take the relationship to the next level. It seemed like his third divorce was in order until his wife, Annette Bauer, got sick. In November of 1999, about a month after Colin allegedly started seeing Anne Walsh, Annette began suffering from dizzy spells. She started losing her balance and had trouble seeing straight. 
For the first couple weeks, the symptoms were mild enough that she didn't go to a hospital. Besides, Colin told her not to worry. She was only 47. It would probably pass. When it didn't, Annette made an appointment with an optometrist and got a prescription for glasses, presuming her aging eyes to be the culprit. Perhaps she was just experiencing migraines and a touch of vertigo. However, on the morning of November 20th, 1999, when Annette arrived at the hospital unconscious, Dr. Andrew Bowers was quick to order a series of tests and blood work. He found that Annette's blood sugar was dangerously low. She'd fallen into a hyperglycemic coma. This is a very specific type of coma that occurs when someone's blood sugar becomes critically low. When the body's blood supply is severely deprived of glucose for a long enough period of time, there's a dangerous potential of lasting brain damage and even death. When the brain is long deprived of fuel, it begins to strain and slowly fails in an attempt to keep the autonomic nervous system afloat, which ultimately keeps us alive. It's much more common for diabetics, but hypoglycemic comas can happen in people who are extremely food-deprived, people with non-diabetic blood sugar conditions, and those on major alcohol benders. There's also some other non-diabetic causes, like severe infection, kidney issues, and reactions to certain drugs. For this last nuance specifically, one of the primary diagnostic steps here is testing the patient for foreign substances or a medication overdose. And Dr. Andrew did test Annette for a possible insulin overdose. Unfortunately, the drug test didn't detect anything in her system. And she wasn't diabetic, so there was no reason for her to have taken any insulin in the first place. He couldn't figure out what was wrong or how to treat Annette. It was a precarious position for Dr. Andrew to be in. Colin worked at the hospital. And though he was in a different department, he technically outranked Andrew, who'd only been a full-fledged doctor for three years. That morning, when the pair first met, Colin had introduced himself as a physician, psychologist, and pharmacologist. He shook, or rather squeezed, Andrew's hand, letting the doctor know who'd be running the show. Andrew likely figured it was because Colin was a much more experienced doctor and wanted to make sure his wife was receiving the best care. But naturally, that made the fact that Dr. Andrew couldn't come to a clear diagnosis that much more awkward. It must have been an uncomfortable situation for him, Alistair. Knowing Colin had seniority and allegedly more experience, the young doctor might have been feeling a little intimidated. When treating the loved one of another doctor, there's sometimes an associated element of strangeness, especially if the two healthcare professionals don't know each other personally. In my experience, this dynamic can lead to butting heads and disagreements over diagnostics or treatment plans. On the other hand, it can also result in excellent harmonious care and even new professional or personal friendships between these collaborating physicians. Personally, I find that treating family members of other doctors is always an informative and useful experience. At the end of the day, doctors tend to take pride in being problem solvers, and they're used to being in charge. 
They like to be able to come to their own conclusions. This might be why Andrew decided to take the path of least resistance. He relayed the full situation to Colin, discussing some of the diagnostic tests they ran on Annette in great detail. But to Andrew's surprise, Colin didn't seem to follow the conversation. His answers were short and vague, like he'd never seen such diagnostic tests before. It struck Andrew as odd. Still, all he could do was puzzle over the situation. A few days after first being admitted to Dunedin Hospital, Annette Bauer's blood glucose levels stabilized. Happily, all of her other symptoms seemed to improve too. She appeared fully recovered, which Andrew must have found vexing. Having no reason to hold her, the hospital soon discharged Annette without fully understanding what had happened. Although Andrew would have another chance to solve the mystery when, just four days later, Annette fell into another coma. She was readmitted and Dr. Andrew Bowers cared for her once again. But just as before, he couldn't figure out the root of the problem. Mentally, Annette wasn't in a good place. Dr. Andrew remembers thinking she looked terrified, which made sense. A few weeks ago, Annette was a perfectly healthy middle-aged woman. Then, out of nowhere, her blood sugar plummeted and she fell into two comas within nine days. Anyone would have been scared for their life, and the hospital could only keep her for a few days until her blood sugar stabilized, but that was it. They had to release her and hope for the best. For doctors, it's really frustrating when you can't definitively diagnose a patient, especially when they're suffering from something as awful as multiple comas. Multiple hypoglycemic comas in such a short span of time are definitely rare, especially for someone who wasn't diabetic. It certainly indicated that something was up, Alistair, and the danger of this repeating itself rested in the possibility of brain damage and death. I've never dealt with a medical mystery case like this in my own practice, but the only resolution in this scenario is to consult with specialists, specialists, and more specialists. This may ultimately lead to more invasive diagnostics or testing, and even then, there's unfortunately never a guaranteed conclusion. In line with this, despite their best attempts and intentions, there wasn't much Annette's medical team could do except hope that her health predicament would improve. But that wasn't the case. In late December 1999, Annette Bauer was admitted to the hospital for a third time. She was discharged a few days later, on Christmas Eve, with Andrew no closer to understanding what was wrong. He had to be overlooking something, some seemingly innocuous piece of information that would explain Annette's condition. Dr. Andrew blamed his inexperience for falling short. But then again, Annette's husband was head of the Department of Psychological Medicine and a trained physician, far above Andrew in the medical field hierarchy. And he didn't know what was causing the comas either. So Andrew continued to try and solve the seemingly impossible puzzle. 
When a week passed and Annette didn't return to the hospital, he may have hoped that maybe her condition had cured itself, leaving as quickly as it set in. Sadly, he was wrong. On the morning of January 5th, 2000, Andrew received a call from Colin. Annette had passed away overnight, and he wondered if Andrew wouldn't mind coming over to sign the death certificate. Andrew felt unsure about the proposition and likely saw the red flag. Nonetheless, he agreed to go to the house and at least see Annette for himself. When Andrew arrived at the Bauer household, he was greeted by an unlikely face, Dr. Anne Walsh. Andrew wondered what she was doing there so early. Maybe Colin called her about the death certificate too. As Andrew entered the bedroom, he saw that it was cluttered with soiled clothing and bedsheets. Annette was unceremoniously spread out across her deathbed, surrounded by vomit. The sight made Andrew's stomach churn. Andrew thought she might have had a massive seizure, and he asked Colin whether he'd heard her thrashing around. Based on the state of the room, she hadn't gone quietly. But Colin shook his head. The couple slept in separate rooms, and he never really heard her when the doors were closed. Per hospital protocol, and especially after seeing the bedroom, Andrew wanted to perform a post-mortem exam on Annette. But Colin refused. He said that he and his wife were Jewish, so there was no time for a post-mortem. She needed to be buried within 48 hours. Andrew grew suspicious. It was like Colin had something to hide. Andrew refused to sign the death certificate until an exam was carried out, and he offered to have it done that day so that Annette could still be buried following Jewish law. Colin finally agreed, and Anne Walsh showed Andrew out. But before he left the house, she thanked Andrew, telling him, quote, It will be good to get all this settled, especially since Annette had accused Colin of trying to murder her. The hair on the back of Andrew's neck bristled. As he drove to the hospital, he likely thought about that conversation from when he first met Colin Bauer and about the diagnostic tests Colin didn't seem to understand. Something wasn't sitting right. While the post-mortem exam didn't show any definitive signs of foul play, the high concentrations of several drugs in her system all but eliminated the possibility of a natural death. And Dr. Andrew Bauer's suspicions only increased when Annette's funeral wasn't held until the following week. He attended the service and was surprised to find a Christian ceremony, complete with an Anglican priest. During the funeral, one of Annette's oldest friends spoke about Annette's deep, unyielding faith in the Lord and her devotion to Jesus Christ. Clearly, this was not a Jewish family. In his article, Mind Game for the New Yorker, journalist Carl Elliott spoke with the reverend who presided over Annette's funeral, a woman named Helene Mann. According to her, Annette's was one of the most bizarre funerals she'd ever prepared for. 
Mann remembered arriving at the Bauer household to find it completely clean, as though the entire house had been sterilized. She also tried speaking with Colin's children about their mother, but they sat in silence on the couch while Colin took control of the conversation. Probably weirdest of all was the music he chose for the funeral. Not any of Annette's favorite songs or the usual hymns, but rather, as Carl Elliott describes it in The New Yorker, a song about going over a cliff. It was becoming clear to everyone who knew Annette that something was wrong, especially when Colin had Annette's body cremated shortly after the ceremony. He seemed hell-bent on making sure that nobody took a second look at his wife's remains. Coming up, the circumstances of Annette's death are finally uncovered. Now, back to the story. After his wife, Annette Bauer, died suddenly on January 5th, 2000, 49-year-old Dr. Colin Bauer began acting strangely. First, he had his wife Annette's body cremated several weeks after her funeral. Then, from his office at the University of Otago in New Zealand, he began reaching out to experts in toxicology across the world, asking all of them how easy it would be to detect glucose-lowering drugs in post-mortem exams. In all likelihood, this fear is why Colin refused a post-mortem exam initially and later cremated his wife. Glucose-lowering medications can be detected in post-mortem exams, as can insulin and many other drugs, if there's not too much time that passes between death and a toxicology screening. Detection of insulin specifically depends on a number of factors, including the dosage, the time between death and the medical examination, and the temperature at which a corpse was stored. Insulin almost entirely degrades from the body after four to five days at room temperature, but this timeline could be extended slightly in colder conditions. Taking other drugs in tandem could heighten their effects, given that glucose-lowering drugs can actually be lethal on their own at high enough doses. As expected, these meds would kill by inflicting severe hypoglycemia. Not long after Annette was cremated, Colin began telling people that, before Annette died, he had been secretly diagnosed with prostate cancer and had battled with depression ever since. He said that when Annette started to have health problems in early November, he went off the deep end. He claimed that the idea of life without Annette was too much to bear. So when she first fell into her coma, he began stockpiling glucose-lowering drugs so that if she died, he could follow her. But, he lamented, Annette must have come across the stash in early January and taken the medications herself possibly to end things on her terms, instead of waiting for this mysterious illness to take her. However, this didn't add up. Despite Annette's mindset, she had wanted to get better. If anything, this strange admission seemed like Colin was calling more attention to how strange and sudden her death was. 
He also used the story to justify his relationship with Anne Walsh, claiming that the two of them found one another in a moment of grief. Unlikely, since their relationship was so solidified that Colin had his two children move in with Walsh in late January 2000, just weeks after Annette's death. She watched after them while Colin went to South Africa to settle Annette's affairs. Despite this weird behavior, much of the staff at Dunedin Hospital were heartbroken for their hardworking and loyal colleague. Everyone believed Colin was torn apart by grief. Well, except one person. The internist who tended to Annette during her three hospital stays, Dr. Andrew Bowers. After the funeral, Andrew went to the police with his suspicions. He told them about his unusual conversation with Colin about the diagnostic tests, the presence of Anne Walsh the morning of Annette's death, and Colin's insistence that Andrew sign the death certificate without a post-mortem exam. It was enough for police to look into the circumstances of Annette Bower's death. In no time, they learned that in the weeks leading up to Annette's death, Colin had been writing himself prescriptions for several different kinds of glucose-lowering drugs called sulfonylureas. This type of medication is used primarily for people with type 2 diabetes who can't efficiently convert and store glucose in their muscles and fat cells. This is a result of their body's inability to properly make use of insulin, which is a hormone that processes glucose for fuel. This deficiency causes their bloodstreams to become flooded with glucose, dangerously raising their levels in the blood. Sulfonylureas work by stimulating insulin production in the pancreas, which helps manage the excess glucose in the system. In regard to Colin prescribing himself these medications, there's actually a positive correlation between using sulfonylureas and the development of metastatic prostate cancer in non-diabetics. So that's pretty odd, Alistair. The truth was, there was no legitimate reason for these kinds of drugs to even be in the Bauer household. Prescriptions in hand, it wasn't hard for the police to piece together what happened. But it would take months for them to gather enough evidence to prove that Colin was guilty of murder. During that time, things got stranger. When Colin returned to New Zealand a month later in February 2000, he was completely bald. Even his eyebrows were bare. He said this was because the real reason he'd gone to South Africa was for a round of chemotherapy. To back up his ludicrous assertions, Colin brought letters from a doctor in Pretoria, South Africa, verifying his treatment for prostate cancer. He had another note from a psychiatrist in Cape Town who claimed to have administered shock therapy for Colin's severe depression. Predictably, both of these letters were forged. And when Colin got back to New Zealand, his behavior didn't support his stories. People grew suspicious. For one thing, he stayed active, regularly going to the gym, despite the fact that his cancer had allegedly spread to his bones. 
This would have meant that the cancer spread beyond its origins in the prostate and entered his bones, implying that his odds of survival would be diminished. If this were true, Colin definitely would have been physically compromised. He wouldn't have had the energy or strength for lifting weights or squash. Given this evidence and Dr. Colin Bauer's history of embellishment and manipulation, it seems highly unlikely that he was truly sick. But that didn't stop him from selling the story. Beyond the physical alterations, Colin's behavior changed too. He started missing appointments and meetings, telling his colleagues one thing, then doing another, and he became highly paranoid. Not that he would be caught for murdering his wife, but that people might be spreading rumors about him behind his back. He couldn't handle the idea that people didn't love him or believe him outright. Colin was so convinced that his colleagues were bad-mouthing him that he began calling meetings with faculty members who worked under him and interrogating them for information on what was being said. One employee said that the confrontations got so bad he felt nauseated and started shaking before walking into Colin's office. It seemed like Colin was more concerned with his reputation than he was upset by the passing of his wife. Of course, none of this surprised Dr. Andrew Bowers. By this point, he'd been working with police for months, even after his superiors at the hospital asked him to stop. Even though Colin was terrorizing the faculty who worked under him, the majority of his colleagues apparently still saw him as a brave, grieving widower. They had a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea that Annette died of foul play, which meant that many of them were shocked when, on September 15th, 2000, Colin was arrested and charged with murder. For months, police had tapped Colin's phones, slowly gathering evidence that he killed his wife. They were also aware that he had prescribed himself glucose-lowering drugs in the weeks leading up to Annette's first coma. They suspected Colin ground them up and put them in her food. And honestly, it didn't seem like that far off of a guess. These drugs have a particularly short-acting effect in the body and quickly dissipate in the system, so they might have been missed in the less comprehensive blood workups and hospital tests that Annette underwent after her initial comas. Furthermore, if Colin was grinding the medication into her food or drinks, its powder would likely allow for quick and easier digestion and faster absorption of any obvious traces of the medication. Also, by telling the responding hospital staff that Annette wasn't a diabetic, careful monitoring of these drugs may have been overlooked or dismissed in the diagnostic puzzle. It'd be additionally surprising if Colin was able to hide the medicine in whatever Annette was consuming, as sulfonyl ureas can sometimes have a funky taste. Colin was crafty here. He was able to poison his wife in a way that was difficult to immediately trace. But the authorities' true smoking gun was a prescription Colin wrote the day before Annette's death for a thousand-unit vial of Humalog insulin, a lethal dosage. What's curious is that Colin killed with such precision 
But other than his choice of murder weapon and the treatment of his wife's corpse, he seemingly made no attempt to cover his tracks. After Colin's arrest, police searched his house and computer. They discovered the materials he used to grind up the glucose-lowering pills. They also discovered the emails he shot off to toxicologists asking about insulin showing up in a post-mortem exam. The emails asked about the likelihood of identifying certain glucose-lowering medications as a cause of hypoglycemia in the hours after a patient's death. It wasn't difficult to figure out which patient Colin was talking about. Colin Bauer's murder trial was an odd affair. It was clear he did it. It was just hard to explain why. Some suspected that he wanted to marry Anne Walsh. But Colin was twice divorced already, and his life was relatively unaffected by those previous marriages. It didn't seem like anything stood in his way if he wanted to divorce Annette. Besides, Colin was involved with so many other women outside of his relationship with Anne and his marriage to Annette that it's hard to say whether he wanted to get married a fourth time. Anne was his main partner, but it didn't seem like she was pressuring him to commit. And investigators found no evidence to suggest Anne had any involvement in Annette's murder. In court, the prosecution argued that Colin's real motive was Annette's life insurance policy. But that theory too falls a little short. Her life insurance policy was worth 260,000 New Zealand dollars, which wasn't much more than Colin's annual salary. And they didn't seem to be hurting for money. Regardless of his ultimate motive, in November 2001, after a brief but productive trial, Dr. Colin Bauer was convicted of Annette's murder and sentenced to a minimum of 15 years in prison before the possibility of parole. He spent much of that time at the Otago Corrections Facility in New Zealand, which locals call the Milton Hilton due to its seemingly high-end amenities such as heated floors. While in prison, Colin's behavior was often described in terms of psychopathy, a characterization he seemed ready to accept. In 2010, reporter Carl Elliott reached out to Colin for an interview for his upcoming piece in The New Yorker, Colin declined, writing, I have learned that the pain of people like me with personality disorders is intense and not easily verbalized. I do not believe the medical profession nor the general public will ever understand the pain that psychopaths endure. And yet, he was far from reformed. When his first parole hearing came up in 2015, he told the board that he did poison his wife, but had done so at her behest. He claimed that she knew her mysterious illness was terminal and wanted to go out on her terms. Then he lied about his involvement because he knew the world wouldn't understand. Like everything else Colin Bauer said, this sounds like it should be taken with a grain of salt. His claim of physician-assisted suicide in this case seems very twisted and suspect. On top of this, it would be a pretty cruel way to help someone you love put an end to their suffering. 
Among a host of other reasons, hypoglycemicomas are preceded by very uncomfortable and painful symptoms, including confusion, abdominal pain, sweating, labored breathing, and weakness. This is one reason why, to me, his claim of mercy just seems like yet another lie. Colin Bauer's case is particularly disturbing because what motivated his killings were vague and unclear, much like his own background and beginnings. There's something inherently creepy about having to fill in mysterious information gaps with your own imagination. It's very scary that this fraud was practicing medicine, and even scarier that he was advising people on their mental health. In the end, his case is an important reminder that doctors are people too, warts and all, with just as many flaws as any average person. Colin Bauer reportedly died in August 2018, less than a year after being released from his New Zealand prison and deported back to South Africa. He was 67 years old. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Colin Bauer, among the many sources we used, we found Carl Elliott's New Yorker piece, Mind Game, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Erin Lan, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.